It's so good that God has allowed us the blessing of assembling today. I know as has been announced already, as Gary had began our announcements, appreciative for the presence of each and every one, both our membership and our visitors alike. And indeed, we're all so honored that God has allowed us to assemble in this way today for the express purpose of offering unto him a worship that's both in spirit and in truth, borrowing the command of John 4, verse 24. And as we've assembled today, already having lifted our voices in song, already having uttered prayers unto the God of heaven, with an opportunity to study his word now, we come to another opportunity to give attention for the next few moments to a section of the word of God. On the wall to my left, you'll notice the title that I've selected for the lesson this morning having to do with that rather common reality of stress. I realize that as we live in a society in which it seems as if stress is such a common thing, I would ask you to notice some of these initial comments. I must confess, I wasn't aware that there was an American Institute of Stress. It is such a common problem, apparently, and such a feature and a relative matter of our society that there is an organization known as the American Institute of Stress. The more I studied about the features and characteristics of stress, I found a whole wealth of particular sources on the internet and otherwise. Stress is a common part of the American way of life and perhaps in many other countries around the world. You'll also notice some additional comments. We are told on a regular basis the impact that stress can have. Those in the medical fields and professions remind us that stress can ultimately impact the heart, bringing on heart disease or other heart problems. It can lead to other problems and health issues from headaches to back pain. It seems as though with every passing month there seems to be new evidence touching the importance and the negative impact of stress. As you come to the bottom of that slide, you might well notice there are a host of stress management programs. There are a host of particular features and self-help advice relative to reducing stress and its impact. I say all of that to say this. What does the Bible say about stress? Does the Bible have any practical advice for you and me as Christians that we can tackle or at least handle the opportunity of stress better than we otherwise could? I think we would all readily affirm the answer to be yes, for we know, do we not know, that every problem and every issue of life is approached by the revelation and the powerful will of God in a way that can offer us advice and helpfulness with respect to it. Such is no different with respect to stress. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, the question is then this one. What about stress in the Christian life, my life and yours? As we turn this page to go to the next slide, one of the initial comments that some might be tempted to make is this one. When we think about the great man Jesus, the very Son of God, of course, did he ever have stress? Did Jesus ever face stressful situations? There are some who would claim the answer to be no, but I would beg to differ, and I'm sure you will too. When you and I look with care at the biblical accounts, those particular features from the gospel accounts touching his life in the flesh, we find that there were a number of situations and circumstances in which he faced great demands, and often these can be described or summed up in these two examples. 
I would invite you to think with me for a moment about the eighth chapter of the gospel according to Luke. In that chapter, we find a number of interesting events, and we shall not read the entirety of those passages, but I believe quick reminders will be enough to suffice. I have highlighted some of the features. Jesus and the disciples, those apostles had arrived, having crossed that particular sea of Galilee, they arrived in that region known as Gadara. Other translations will remind us that this was the region or territory of the Gerasenes. It seems as though no sooner did the Lord disembark the ship that he as well as they encountered a demon-possessed man. Not only demon-possessed by one, but demon-possessed by legion, by many. This one had superhuman strength. He could not be bound even by chains. He was a naked man who lived in the tombs. People were afraid of him, perhaps rightly so. All the while, we notice that those demons, they well recognized the power of the one that had now arrived. You may recall they said, Wilt thou torment us before the time? They knew very well Jesus the Christ. And upon seeing him, they acknowledged exactly who he was. In that acknowledgement, you'll remember that Jesus ultimately healed that man. He cast out that legion. And remember, they went into a herd of swine who perished in the sea shortly thereafter. But keep in mind, however long those events took, after they were over, look what else happened. The people insisted that Jesus depart. They were unhappy with him being there because they cared more for the hogs than they did for him. Not only might those statements be made, it seems no sooner did that set of events end. He was now approached by a man, Jairus. You can perhaps get a feeling as you and I think about the demands that sometimes the work world forces upon us. I no sooner finish one job and I've got half a dozen waiting. I no sooner seemingly finish one meeting that there's a dozen more on the docket for the next few days. Do the demands never stop? Do the demands ever find satisfaction? You'll notice that J. Iris came, and he made, of course, a statement about his own daughter. She was very ill, and he desired the master to do something about it. You might immediately notice a demand was placed upon Jesus. J. Iris besought him to aid, to help, to assist. As you notice very quickly, I've chosen to simply summarize the following. The Lord, of course, had a strong desire to help that man Jairus, and hence he proceeded to the destination. However, on the way, a woman having an issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Here was yet another person wanting his attention, another individual who begged in many interesting fashions, very meek and humble apparently, but she had enough courage to touch the hem of his garment. One by one, the Lord had all these demands placed upon him, and he still hadn't even arrived at J. Iris' house. You may recall the conversation that ensued between Jesus and that woman. He pronounced upon her a great commendation, that, that is to say, her faith. After finishing that, he then proceeded to the house of J. Iris. Before he arrived, word had come your daughter's dead. Jesus quickly calmed that gentleman, calmed Jairus and said, Fear not. 
He encouraged him to believe. When they arrived at the place, you may remember that there was already great weeping over her death. Peter, James, and John went with Jesus, and Jesus resurrected her to life. Think about the demands that characteristically described all of these sequential events. And again, these were all in one part of one day. Do you ever face a lot of demands in a day? Do you ever face the questions and the assertions and the demands of people in a day? I'm sure we all can quickly affirm that answer to be yes. I would submit to you, though, that you could even mention another event. You look at the bottom of that slide and mark the second chapter. Here's another scene in which Jesus, it seems one after another, was prompted to give strong consideration to the demands of others. Here was the Lord thronged by so many people. He was teaching. He was instructing. He was delivering the great word of heaven. There were some people that wanted to meet with him. The crowd was so great they couldn't get the sick man in, so they went up to the roof and tore off the panels and lowered him right down in front of Jesus. Talk about nerve and talk about confidence. Here were these. They could get the sick man, the palsied man before him in no other way that they could easily think of, and hence with great effort they hauled him to that roof and then lowered him right there after disassembling portions of that roof. Did you notice how Jesus reacted to that? He didn't scold the four men for interrupting his sermon. He didn't scold the four men for interrupting his dissertation to that crowd. He nonetheless had great interest in that palsied man. And in so doing, you may remember the tremendous teaching the Lord taught that day. Maybe at this point you can notice Jesus, in some sense, was interrupted then. How did he react? Was it a stressful situation? It surely could have been. When you and I think about the stress that faces us, sometimes the sources can be so many, aren't they? The, work, the workplace, demands from those that are superiors at the workplace, the circumstances that touch the demands of the kids, there's ball games, there's other social activities, Seems the teachers want to meet with us from time to time just on regular occasions. It fills our schedule. And if all that isn't enough, when things are too smooth, we're concerned about what's the teenager doing. We get the idea. It seems there's an endless supply of sources of concern, an endless supply of sources of stress. You noticed a moment ago in this Matthew, the sixth chapter, Jesus had much to say of practical help to assist you and me to, to handle this matter of stress. As we turn to this next slide, you may notice the closing part of that slide highlights the following. However Jesus handles stress should be a matter of great interest to you and me. For you and I know he never sinned. Never once did he make a mistake in that regard. The Hebrew writer pointed it out in language like this, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. However the Lord approached these potentially stressful situations ought to provide you and me an opportunity to also approach stress in a way that could be far better than anything the American Institute of Stress might have to say. What did Jesus do in these situations? 
you might recall that we're admonished in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, to have the mind of Christ. Whatever attitude he used, whatever approach he employed, it would be one you and I could well adopt today and recognize and feel sure that it would be the thing that God would find well-pleasing. To face stress, I would suggest that we quickly draw a number of lessons out of this text that was read just a moment ago. Jonathan read for us from Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34. We recognize that as the central portion of the Sermon on the Mount, a set of passages that touched so many noteworthy lessons and that also bring them forthright to you and me today. I've quickly chosen to highlight six lessons. We shall be somewhat brief with respect to each one of them, but every one of them are extracted identically from that set of verses taken just a moment ago. When you and I think about stress, let me ask you that there are some things that you and I are about to learn concerning it that might be a bit surprising. And quite frankly, it might even be a bit thought-provoking in the sense that it poses great lessons of failure on my part. What did Jesus have to say about stress? The first and principal lesson that must stand at the very zenith and outset of the whole thing starts in verse 24. Jesus very powerfully said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Ponder with me for just a moment the absolute simplicity of that message. It is possible, the Lord said, to serve only one master at a time. Have you ever thought about what the word worry really means and the basic significance of its derivation? The word worry comes from an ancient word that literally means to divide the mind. And hence, that which leads to worry means that there has been a division in priority, a division in significance, a division in direction. And that's what you and I call worry. When there's singleness of mind, and when there's singleness of approach, and when there's singleness of priority and master, it puts worry at bay because worry literally means to divide the mind. You'll notice in light of those initial comments, the very thought then of worry suggests a divided loyalty, a divided allegiance. And that should not be characteristic, of course, of the Christian. Our allegiance is solely directed to the one who died for us and the one who, of course, has provided for us all the blessings and benefits necessary and needed to sojourn this life safely, joyously, and appropriately. No wonder in light of that, you'll notice, regardless of effort, it doesn't matter how much attempt one might make, it is not possible to serve two masters simultaneously. One of them will be the higher of the two in hierarchy. One will be the preeminent one. One will take center stage over the other. It is not possible to serve two at the same time. And you and I know well that there is one God and one Lord. Didn't Paul in that marvelous refrain of unity in Ephesians 4 verses 5 and 6 say that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Peter, didn't he remark in Acts chapter 10 verses 36 to 38? He, speaking of Christ, is Lord of all. 
1 Timothy 6 verse 15 speaks with you and with me with rather directness and says, We serve the one and only invisible God, the one and only potentate, Jesus Christ our Lord. If he is then Lord of all, there should be no division relative to those matters that could preempt our service to him for these respective ways of ongoing concern and worry about ultimately what he puts to rest in this passage. One final thought might well be this one. That particular source that does seemingly fulfill so often the object of that worry, it's material things, it's worldly things. And aren't we reminded to love not the world? Neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. James rather directly told every one of us, both then and now, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Might you and I then learn an initial lesson about the superintending brilliance attached to Jesus Christ as the one and only Master. But based upon that, look at what so quickly follows. The very last statement and sentence of verse 24, Ye cannot serve God and mammon. What an interesting term. That's another one of those words that you and I use perhaps never in modern English language. It comes from an ancient word of the Aramaic language as I understand it, and it has to do again with those material things recognized and attached to the very thought of money and wealth and possessions. Mammon, you cannot serve God in mammon. I can't help but share an interesting observation. After I'd already had this lesson prepared, I noticed on the news that there was a report out and guess what the number one source of stress in the modern American society is? I found the timing impeccable. 72% of those polled made the statement that the number one cause of their stress and the number one entity producing it is wealth, money. Something attached in one way or another to money. Either the retirement savings, the characteristic of the failure to make as much as they'd like, money. Furthermore, of that number that was polled, over 20% of them said the degree of stress they would characterize as extreme stress. Not just minor, but extreme. If you and I turn back the clock 20 centuries and reflect on what the Lord said, did he have some words of wisdom relative to money, relative to attacking what the world would often place upon us as stress? You'll notice some of these thoughts readily come before us. It's easy to see that what caused stress then apparently still does it now, with so many saying that that's the cause of their stress. Look at some of these comments, though, if you would. Our world and so many individuals have fully bought hook, line, and sinker the thought that wealth will make happiness and money will make one joyously happy no matter what the other circumstances may be. That's the message the devil poses and preaches time and time again. And yet we find the opposite message in the Bible. 
In Zephaniah 1 verse 18, In the days of the ancient time of old, with regard to the ancient people of Israel, your wealth will not save you. We notice in Revelation 18, near the close of the sacred word of God, one final time with respect to the destruction of Babylon. And of course, that was the veiled description of the ancient Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was wealthy. She had so many riches. And yet, with regard to it in Revelation 18, verses 17 and following, the God of heaven, again, Jesus the Christ, very clearly affirmed that your riches, your riches have all been moth-eaten. They have all been such that they will not suffice. You and I know so well the Roman Empire did crumble. Her money couldn't save her. All the wealth that she had, ultimately somebody else plundered and stole it. Today, if we aren't careful, you and I too can sell our soul for a dollar bill. If we aren't careful, we can sell all of eternity for a dollar bill. Our world preaches to us that the dollar, the almighty dollar, as we're, as we're told, is worth everything else. And yet you and I know that Jesus so directly put it in language like this. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. Jesus said, The entire riches of all the world does not add up to the worth of one soul. How much is your soul worth in mine? May we never bow before the God of money. May we never underestimate the provision of God for those that are his faithful children. That is a key element in reducing stress, isn't it? Knowing that there's a God who cares about me and who has promised to provide, as we're about to see in the further elements of the lesson. The God of money, the Bible warnings present this abounding message. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6. You see, even in Paul's day, as he wrote to Timothy, this was a concern and a problem. Not much has changed, has it? After those two lessons, what about a third one? As you and I have thought about the uniqueness of the master we serve and the nature and the potential problem that money brings and the love of it, what about lesson number three? And here's the part, at least, that was a bit of a revelation to me. See what you think. When Jesus spoke about stressful situations on this occasion, when he highlighted the features and the characteristic ways to attack it, did you notice that the Lord identified stress and the way we handle it as a critical matter in our faith? Notice again, if you would please, the way that verse number 30 reads it. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O oh, ye of little faith. O oh, ye of little faith. Some might say, well, Jesus insulted these people. No, he didn't. He told the truth. He was able to read their hearts. He was able to see rather directly where their priorities and the construction of their life was. And he said, you are of little faith. If you are allowing these matters to lead to this kind of behavior, you'll notice in that statement before us. So interestingly, Jesus used two unforgettable approaches. The first, what about the birds of the air? 
When's the last time you saw a bird dressed in a suit carrying a briefcase to work? When's the last time you saw a bird working feverishly from daylight till dark trying to get that night's food? When's the last time you saw a bird going sleepless for days on end trying to make ends meet? I haven't ever seen it. And yet those birds are provided for and some of them are rather fat by my own observation. Secondly, what about those flowers in the garden? And what about those other sometimes wild ones, not even grown in a garden? They live out wild in the fields, and they're sometimes so pretty. Notice again the Lord's statement. Verse number 28. Why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. I have yet to see a flower running a sewing machine. I have yet to see a flower making its way to buy garments at Walmart. And yet God clothes them with such extravagance, such provision. It was on the heels of that that Jesus made this statement. Verse number 29. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Those wild flowers that grow out in the field... Think about them for just a moment. No provision is made for them by human beings. They're watered by God's rain. They're provided from the soil that God has provided for them, and with that they provide for themselves very well. In fact, Jesus even affirmed that even the majesty and the extravagance and the opulence of Solomon couldn't compare to it. Solomon, arguably the wealthiest king in all the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 1.15, we're told there that silver was so abundant in Jerusalem it was like rocks. I think we'd be well off around here if that were the case, at least monetarily. But yet even Solomon's glory wasn't comparable to it. You'll notice in light of all those things, some of these comments come before us. There were several times in the gospel, according to Matthew especially, that Jesus used this phrase, little faith. It might do us well to reflect a bit briefly upon each one of them. I've listed the first one in Matthew 6, verse number 30. Look where the next one occurs. In Matthew 8, verse number 26, Jesus had been asked to, of course, heal. And we notice he even affirmed that with regard to those that were Jewish versus those that were Gentiles, a Gentile had come to him, and the Gentile was so openly accepting of the power of Jesus he even said, you don't need to come to my house. If you just say the word, everything will be fine. You may remember Jesus said, I've not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And he characterized the little faith of the others in a very sobering way. What about that text in Mark 14, or rather Matthew 14, verse 31? Peter had walked on the water. Peter had walked on the water. Jesus had come in the wee hours of the early morning. They saw what they thought was an apparition or a ghost or a spirit on the water. Jesus quickly attempted to calm their spirits. It's I, he said, be not afraid. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Peter stepped out of that boat. He did step out on the water with courage and with fortitude. But he began to sink when he saw the boisterous waves about him. And it was then Jesus said, Peter, your faith's little. 
Notice here's yet another instance when little faith was characteristic of failure. It was characteristic of not focusing on the master as we should. One last example is verse 8 of Matthew 16. One more time, O ye of little faith. It reminds us time after time that this issue that you and I become distracted with regard to the things about us is characteristic of a little faith. It happened to Peter. It happened here in Matthew chapter 6. It happened in Matthew chapter 8. It happened in Matthew chapter 16. Isn't it true that that can be the very thoroughfare that ultimately leads a person further and further away from God? Little faith. On the heels of all those things, we might now ask, if it is the case then that stress is a byproduct of a little faith, then how do I increase my faith? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You and I need to spend more time in the sacred text. We need to allow the, our faith to develop and to grow as a result of the Word of God. We need to always be present at the assemblies of the church, every one of them, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, worship services and Bible studies alike, where the Word of God is revered and lifted high. We need to understand that as we pray to God daily for His assistance in our understanding of this powerful Word, May we also understand that that faith as it develops, we will leave all the problems of stress behind. What about lesson number four? This one too is in some instances a very powerful observation. You'll notice verse 27 is a verse I have not asked you to read with me yet. Jonathan read it for us earlier. Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? There are some things in life many people worry about. Many people give sleepless concern to it when ultimately it is a matter that's out of their control. Many a young boy, I'm sure, would like to be about six inches taller so he can play basketball better. But it doesn't matter how much you want that. That's not something you can bring about by your wishes. Many a young lady might desire so strongly in so many ways for some physical change in her demeanor, but that may well be out of her control. Jesus said, how many of you by taking thought can make yourself a stature higher? How many of you can make yourself grow 18 inches just by wishing for it and worrying about it? And we know the answer to that question. None of us can do it. How often are your worries and mind directed towards something over which ultimately you do not have control? It's in somebody else's control. You might realize with me that that kind of thing, and it never hurts to be wise in one's consideration, of course, but to give endless concern to something that's out of your control and mind is a bit inefficient and quite frankly mostly wasteful, isn't it? Jesus said, Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit into his stature? In that same context where he'd spoken about the flowers and the birds, he now asks that rather sobering question of us. At the bottom, notice what Jesus said to Peter in John 21. This was after the Lord's resurrection, but prior to his ascension, of course, to glory. 
Jesus had made comment about the nature of, of the passing or the death. You may remember that it was Peter who said, in relation to that very artifact, what about me? What about him? That text referred to John. But Jesus said, I'll take care of John. You worry about yourself. You give concern to that over which you have control, Peter. Maybe that's wise words of advice for all of us still today, isn't it? Two final lessons, and brief they are. And then the lesson will be yours this morning. As far as number five, might I ask you to notice one other interesting observation that Jesus made. And he almost made it parenthetically, but what a sobering fact it is. Verse number 31 says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? And then in parenthesis he said, For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Jesus said people who don't know God are the ones that ought to be stressed out. The people who don't have a God taking care of them ought to be the ones that are so worried and stressed. Your Heavenly Father takes care of you just like he does the flowers and the birds. And it is in that context we find that famous passage in verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then notice the final promise. All these things shall be added unto you. He did not say they might be or they could be. He said they shall be. If you seek the Lord first, he will make sure these things are taken care of. If you follow the will of God, he will ensure that your physical needs are met. Now, he may not provide your wants. You may not have a dozen cars and a fine mansion, but he'll see that your needs are met. That's his promise. What a great message to help reduce stress. You and I know our sojourn in this life is a brief one, and we know that there's an all of eternity waiting beyond. No wonder as you think then about what the world's is given to. We find that standing in such great opposition to the words of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, we find this statement, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. For he that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh the door shall be opened. And in that very context, Jesus said, As you then pray to your heavenly Father, if fathers give to their children good gifts, won't God give to you good gifts too? In Philippians 4, verse number 6, Paul, in writing to the congregation at Philippi, to them said, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Did Paul encourage the Philippians to be stressed out, or rather, to be anxious for nothing? We live in a world where the devil wants you and me to be frenetic, chaotic, and stressed to the max. Because he knows if he can divide our mind that way, it's likely a short step to apostasy. Lesson number six. And finally, what about the view of life that this passage encourages us to keep in mind? The world that is so stressed is a world that looks upon the physical features and matters of this life as the epitome and the ultimate message of everything. 
But you and I know this is only a small amount of it in the sense that we know our life here ends, but there's all of life after it. There's all of eternity somewhere. And surely in wisdom we should not so conduct ourselves here to forfeit the blessing of there. No wonder the view of life takes us back to verse 25 of this very passage. I would ask you to note it again. Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for the body what ye shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. And to that you and I would say a hearty yes. You and I are immortal spirits. It's far more than the clothes on this body, far more than the food we may eat. And so to live faithfully in the sight of God is far more valuable and far more worthwhile. These final thoughts then are yours. 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 1 says, In marvelous character toward that abode after this one, for if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Paul could say in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. All of the difficulties of life had vanished into the marvelous promise of what waited ahead. May you and I keep our eyes similarly focused on what's ahead and not allow the devil to bring us undue stress, worrying over in many cases things that will never happen anyway. In summary to this lesson, we'll close it by quickly highlighting those things we've seen. We cannot serve two masters. If Jesus isn't your master today, make it so. You will never regret that decision. If you will live faithfully with him throughout the fullness of your days upon this life, you'll understand his promise and blessings every day. Stress and worry will not, will not be a part of that which is your daily walk in life. You'll notice furthermore, money, though often the centerpiece of what concerns the world is simply a blessing you and I know and we look forward to giving much of it back to him anyway. Thirdly, we've learned so very well that Jesus attached stress to, quite frankly, a matter in faith. How's your faith today? Just like those apostles, may you and I be ready to say, Lord, increase our faith. Finally, as we concluded the lesson, so much of worry is unpractical anyway. And isn't it so very true, as you and I so noted, our view of life prompts us to have a higher vision than this. Jesus has given us some practical advice to handling stress. I hope we can all implement it, put it into practice, and use it to be the joyous people God would have us to be. If today there's someone in this audience that's not a faithful Christian, it may well be you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do you delay? Why not come to his faithful side at once? You do that, of course, by believing in Jesus as a Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing Him audibly as a Son of God, and being baptized. And if we could assist you in accomplishing that today, what a delightful day it'd be. If, on the other hand, you have known the faithfulness characteristic of Christianity, but you have allowed the demands and the stresses that the devil can bring to separate you from the peace of life you know you want, 
Why not make things changing today? Ask for the prayers of brethren for strength and for forgiveness. God has promised to fill your life with the wonder and the promise of His Word. And if today we can do that, don't delay any longer. Why not come if you would while together we stand and sing?